Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Dallas, April 1963. Lee Harvey Oswald's life is a mess. His marriage is falling apart. He beats his wife in fits of rage. His job, like most of his prior attempts to earn a living, is not working out. He's also now the proud owner of a 38 revolver and a high-powered rifle. And seven months before the assassination of President Kennedy, Oswald is making final preparations to use that rifle to murder someone else. I'm Paul Brandis. You're listening to Countdown to Dallas, a podcast based on my book of the same title. By now, Oswald's plan to assassinate the right-wing general Edwin Walker, who was advocating for the overthrow of Oswald's communist hero, Cuban leader Fidel Castro, was in its final stages. In hindsight, I probably may have given Lee Harvey Oswald the idea to go after General Walker. I certainly didn't tell him to take the law in his own hand, not at all. He may also have thought of General Walker independently. Volkmar Schmidt speaking on PBS's Frontline in 1993, it was shortly after their chat at a party that Oswald bought his mail-order rifle. I gave the details on this in the prior episode. Oswald's planning for the Walker killing was meticulous. He staked out the general's home. He took photos. He found a spot to stash his rifle afterwards. He also left a detailed set of instructions for Marina in the event that he did not make it home. Some conspiracy buffs deny all this, but have never been able to explain why all this documentation was found in Oswald's belonging after the Kennedy assassination seven months later. There was also Marina Oswald's testimony about the attempted killing of Walker. It is, frankly, a mountain of evidence, the existence of which no rational person can deny. Meanwhile, eager to see the photos of himself posing with his guns, photos that were taken by Marina on March 31st and discussed in our prior episode, Oswald probably developed the film the very next day in the darkroom at work. I previously mentioned how Oswald gave a copy of one photo to his friend George de Morenschild. On the back, Oswald wrote, quote, Hunter of fascists, ha ha ha, in Russian, and dated the photo April 5th, 1963. He then signed it, Lee Oswald. Oswald also gave one photo to Marina and their daughter, June. On the back, he wrote, quote, for Junie from Papa, unquote. Marina found this appalling. Why would June want a picture of her dad posing with his guns? Oswald's answer, quote, to remember Papa by sometime, unquote. 
The day after signing his gun photo for De Morenschild, Oswald got some bad news. He was being fired. He'd been at Jagger's Child Stovall for just five and a half months, more than enough time for his bosses to realize that he just wasn't working out. One of the company's founders, Robert Stovall, said that Oswald was, quote, a constant source of irritation, unquote. Stovall added that he was, and I'm quoting again, inefficient. I would not say that he was industrious, unquote. But it was more than laziness. Oswald's co-workers were fed up with him, saying that he was rude and selfish. One supervisor, John Graff, said, quote, I began hearing or began noticing that very few people liked him. He was very difficult to get along with, unquote. Graff added that whenever Oswald's name came up, other employees spoke poorly of him. There was a general consensus that he had a, quote, unfriendly way, unquote, and didn't leave a good impression. Also rubbing people the wrong way was the fact that Oswald read Russian newspapers at work that simply did not sit well with his colleagues. Grafe also said that Oswald was just incompetent. He kept making the same mistakes over and over again. His constant errors were, quote, too frequent to allow, unquote. To spare Oswald the embarrassment of being let go in front of others, Grafe took him into the dark room to deliver the bad news. He was honest with Oswald about the reasons his work wasn't cutting it, and there was friction with others. According to Graf, Oswald did not challenge any of this. He simply said, well, thank you, or words to that effect. This was yet another humiliation for Oswald. Back in America for less than a year, he'd already been through a couple of jobs. Neither one worked out. A minute ago, I mentioned Robert Stovall, one of the bosses at Jaggers. He would play an indirect role in Oswald later landing a job in October at the Texas School Book Depository. It's an amazing story that conspiracy buffs often overlook or choose to ignore. I'll tell that story in a future episode. So to recap, Oswald was out of a job. His marriage was collapsing, but he still had his guns. That's the sound of a Manlicher Carcano, the same six and a half millimeter Italian-made rifle that Oswald had just gotten in the mail. He probably practiced with his rifle for the first time at a nearby levee. It was around this time that George de Morenschild's wife, Jean, visited Marina at the Oswald's shabby Neely Street apartment. Showing her guest around, Marina opened a clothes closet, and there in the corner was the rifle. She said, quote, we are so short of money, and this crazy lunatic buys a rifle, Marina said, according to Jean's 1964 testimony. This made de Morenschild probably the only person, besides Marina herself, to actually see the Carcano among Oswald's possessions. Marina was disgusted with her husband's attachment to his rifle. When Oswald left again one day to practice, she said, don't bother to come home at all. I hope the police catch you. Oswald's last day at Jaggers was April 6th. He still had not told Marina that he had been fired. On April 10th, he finally fessed up, but lied, which we've established was quite common for him, blaming his dismissal not on his incompetence or poor attitude, the reasons given by his bosses, 
but on the FBI. According to Marina, Oswald said the FBI was probably checking up on him. That's why he was dismissed. Oswald added, for dramatic effect, when will they leave me alone? That same night, a momentous event, Oswald's attempted assassination of General Walker. Peering through his four-power scope at the general, Oswald fired from a distance believed to be about 100 yards. General Walker told the story to a reporter the very next morning. General, will you describe for us just what happened last night? Well, the police from the city came in to investigate a rifle shot that was fired into the house, fired through the west window, and hit the cell and hit the wall across the room and went through the wall over the desk at which I was sitting. This happened at 9 o'clock. Walker was lucky. The bullet nicked a wooden window frame, deflecting its path just enough to fly through the general's hair, just missing his head. I heard a blast and crack right over my head, Walker later said. After stashing his rifle, Oswald, who did not have a car, he didn't even know how to drive, likely escaped on foot and then the bus, his usual modes of transportation. What about Marina's activities that night? Priscilla Johnson McMillan, the author of Marina and Lee, tells that part of the drama. She waited until seven, and then she made herself a little supper. At about ten, he still hadn't come home. She was worried. She walked into a room, his study, which he told her never to enter. And there, on his desk, she saw a sheet of paper with a key lying on top of it. As Marina read Oswald's note, which was written in Russian, she became frightened. Oswald wrote an 11-point memo instructing her what to do if he was, quote, taken prisoner. He told her the rent and utilities had been paid and for her to dispose of his clothing, but hang on to his papers. He said if she needed help, to ask friends or the Red Cross. In short, it was a bizarre note from a man who clearly did not think he would be returning after whatever it was he had gone to do. The note was found in his belongings that November after President Kennedy was killed. He then explained where to find the jail. And she had no idea what he'd gone to do, and she was started to shake all over. Fourteen years later, Marina's recall of that scary night remained razor sharp. Here she is in a 1977 interview with talk show host Dick Cavett. Uh, He did not come from uh, home too late. And I was worried and I found a note was left for me in case if something happened to me, what to do with the instructions on it. I forgot what the instructions was. You know, with the key to uh, mailbox uh, was or something like that. And he left the money and I didn't know what it was all about. So he came home very late and very scared and pale and asked him what, what happened. And he, he turned the radio on and was listening for a while and he said that I tried to shoot General Walker. Of course, I was in panic and I asked him, uh, how did you come up with such a crazy idea to shoot a person? Why? And he said that because his, if, I mean, his excuse was... Um, if somebody at the right time disposed of Hitler, maybe the world will be spared of all this um, millions of 
innocent people have been, you know, they care. Yeah. So he saw himself as the so savior said, of the world by eliminating so Walker. So he said that he was a fascist and he's a man that shouldn't exist in society. So mm -hmm. I tried to argue case with him, remember that if you have one idea and somebody disagrees with you, you just don't go shoot them. You debate your ideas and do the peaceful way uh, about so, Lee Harvey Oswald was now an attempted murderer. Conspiracy buffs don't buy it, but again, here's McMillan. Later that night, about 11.30, Lee came in, white, covered with sweat, and um, looking quite wild in the eyes, and he said, I shot Walker. Now, some conspiracy theorists say that Oswald had nothing to do with the attempted killing of General Walker. And yet, Oswald left an 11-point note for Marina, telling her what to do if he was, quote, alive and taken prisoner by the police. And, according to Marina, he admitted trying to kill the right-wing general. And, according to Marina, he said he buried the rifle. The attempted shooting of General Walker was all over the next day's newspapers and radio programs. Oswald listened and read attentively. He told Marina, quote, I missed. He also said, according to Marina, that he was very sorry that he missed. Oswald also snickered at one report of two getaway cars seen speeding away after the shooting. Americans are so spoiled, he told his wife. They always think you have a car. It never occurs to them that you might use your own two legs. In February 1964, in a rare news conference, Marina was asked about the attempted Walker shooting. Her English isn't very good, but I'll help on the other side. Are you convinced, do you believe, that your husband also shot at General Walker? Yes, I believe. Because he tell me this. Lee Oswald tell me this. Oh, this is after she, me. after she tried to shut the book. Mrs. Oswald, uh, at that time, uh, why didn't you tell the police about that when he told you he shot at General Walker? Mm. Because I am wife. Marina acknowledged that her husband shot at Walker because that's what he told her. As for why she didn't go to the cops, well, it was her husband. A broader explanation for that could be that the Soviet emigre had a fear of authority. She had grown up in a brutal police state, after all, and may have feared that her husband, reprehensible as his murderous behavior was, was still the father of their daughter. In April 1963, of course, she was also pregnant with another child. In any case, Lee Harvey Oswald got off scot-free. No one would know anything about it until after President Kennedy's murder, when the bullet from Walker's home would be linked to Oswald. No co-conspirators were ever identified. More Countdown to Dallas right after this quick break. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast. 
I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. Let's take a step back from our narrative here and explore the following theory. It can be argued that the Walker shooting erases the claim that the subsequent assassination of President Kennedy was ideologically motivated. After all, Oswald had just tried to murder a far-right winger, an enemy of President Kennedy. This tells us that Oswald's murderous violence did not discriminate between left and right. Shortly before his death in 2015, I had lunch with former Secret Service agent Jerry Parr. You might know Parr as the agent who saved President Ronald Reagan's life in 1981 by shoving Reagan into his limo and then ordering his driver to take the president to the hospital. At that lunch, I asked Parr his thoughts on Oswald. Parr considered Oswald nothing more than an unbalanced young man looking for attention and fame. This dovetails with what we do know about Oswald, namely his proven thirst for media attention, his desire to do something that would ensure his fame, as he said, 10,000 years later, and his alleged desire, expressed in the Marines, to assassinate President Dwight Eisenhower. Eisenhower, of course, was a staunch conservative, a rock Republican, Kennedy, Eisenhower, it can be argued that it made no difference to Oswald, who coveted attention. The Walker episode would be followed days later by another one involving Oswald and a gun, when he claimed to have read in the paper that former Vice President Richard Nixon was in town. It was Sunday, April 21st, and Lee appeared in a suit with his new handgun at his waist. Nixon is coming, he told Marina. I want to go and have a look. Marina, who didn't know who Nixon was, was alarmed. Or from her 1977 interview with Cavett. I said, where are you going? He said, I'm going to have a look. Nixon's coming to town. Mm-hmm. So we'll have a fight. I told him, he's not. if he's going to leave the house, it's going to be over my dead body. So we... Yeah. Russell, was this this was after the General Walker incident? Yes. Eleven days. Uh-huh. And she how long exactly. before the Kennedy assassination? Seven months. Well, you know all the statistics. Yeah. So that's the second time where you realize you hadn't cured him uh, yes. of his violent ideas. In 1964, she testified that she struggled for several minutes with Oswald to keep him from leaving. Eventually, calmed down. Equally bizarre is the fact that Nixon was not even in Dallas that day. Marina said she thought he was putting on some kind of show, perhaps a joke. She said, quote, My husband had a sadistic streak in him and got pleasure out of harming people, unquote. In any case, it's yet another example of Oswald's instability, his violent, explosive tendencies. 
By now, again, it's spring of 1963, Marina had made a new friend, Ruth Payne, a 30-year-old divorcee who was studying Russian and hoped to be a teacher of it. In February, she eagerly accepted an invitation to a dinner party by George and Jean de Morinschild for a chance to meet Marina and Lee Oswald and speak Russian. Quick sidebar, conspiracy buffs have made much of the fact that Ruth's father, during World War II, worked for the OSS, the precursor of the CIA. Surely some say that's fishy, or that Payne's mother, according to one confidential informant years earlier, during the height of the destructive and paranoid McCarthy era, was a communist, or that her father-in-law was. Surely the conspiracy buffs think this must prove something. Problem is, after six decades, they've been unable to do so. Anyway, Ruth, who, by the way, was and is a Quaker and pacifist, was affiliated with nothing more than the American Civil Liberties Union and League of Women Voters. That's the background. In a 2019 interview at the Sixth Floor Museum in Dallas, Ruth described that very first encounter with the Oswalds. Uh, a friend that I had been singing with, and I met somebody who did the magical group this evening, and uh, he knew that I'd been, was interested in studying Russian and knew that this young couple would be there and invited me and Michael to come. Michael had a cold, so he didn't get to go, but I went. <laughs> Lee was talking with people in the kitchen about, I asked him about his trip to, to the Soviet Union and wanting to defect there. And uh, uh, people listened well. And then I went into the bedroom because Marina was taking care of their baby June and she couldn't understand the conversation that was going on. So I went in to try to talk to her and I was, very pleased that I could make myself understood and that I could more or less understand her. And so it began, this relationship of immense historical consequence. Ruth asked Marina for her address, hoping to keep in touch. After Oswald was fired from Jaggers in April, he decided to look for work in New Orleans, the city of his birth. Never mind that Marina, with a one-year-old, was pregnant with another child, spoke little English, and didn't work. Oswald left, saying that when he found work, he would send for his family. And that's how Marina Oswald first came to stay with Ruth Payne at her home in Irving. So all I knew was that he was going to look for work, and uh, he wanted her to go by the bus to uh, get there. And, of course, when he had a place for them, he would have to write to tell her so. I said, well, hey. You know, she could stay at my house. I have a phone. You could call when you have a place, and, and uh, I'll bring her down with, with you and the baby. And my two kids, of course, with, went with me everywhere. So that's what happened. Uh, when he had a place, he called. And uh, she was so sweet. She, she said to her daughter after he talked, Papa, father loves us. She was pleased to be going to uh, New Orleans. And so Oswald was off. He'd been back in America less than a year and had already lived in half a dozen places, unstable even by his standards. He would arrive in the Crescent City on April 25th, and with nowhere to go, 
called his Aunt Lillian and Uncle Charlie out of the blue, asking if he could stay with them. They hadn't heard from Oswald in six years, but he was family. He was back in New Orleans, looking again for what had always eluded him and which he craved, attention and fame. He would find some degree of both, though not necessarily in a good way. And after the job failures that dogged him during his first 10 months back in America, he was hoping for better luck. On that front, he would again find disappointment and frustration. He would also have his first run-ins with the law. If you like this podcast, check out my book of the same title, Countdown to Dallas. Sound from the PBS program Frontline, I highly recommend its 1993 episode titled, Who Was Lee Harvey Oswald? Also sound from the Sixth Floor Museum in Dallas and Daphne Productions for The Dick Cavett Show. Our editor and producer, Aaron Land. Audio engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman. Executive producers, Michael DeAloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm Paul Brandis. Thanks so much for listening. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.